welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is a place for stories of hope, for psychiatric stories of healing. And today, I'm going to tell a couple stories that came out of some letters that I found. Now, for those of you who know me, which is some of my listeners, you know that I am a perjurer. Whatever is the genetic makeup of a hoarder, and that clearly hoarding has major genetic component. Whatever that is, I have the opposite. So, for example, one of my favorite things to do is to go through the garage, find stuff and just put it out on the curb and watch and wait, see how many minutes it will take for someone to take it. And it's just shocking to me because it doesn't matter what I put on the curb, old skis, broken dresser, hula hoop, painted some strange color, it's gone within minutes. And clearly the people that are picking up are full of joy. And I'm shocked. I'm happy for them. And I'm getting a little vicarious joy in how much joy they're getting, but I am a perjurer. You know, sometimes I think, hmm, maybe I'd be happier if I just lived in a little house with my road bike, my cruiser bike, my running shoes, a Frisbee, an LED Frisbee for nighttime, some music, my guitar, and that would be a simple, happy perjur life. But that's not how our house is. <laughs> it's got a lot of stuff in it. So, but one thing I do hold on to dearly, because I have a huge sentimental part of my heart, is I hold on to letters and I hold on to cards. And the other day I was going through a file of letters of patients, because anytime I get a letter from a patient over the last 20 years, I keep it. And it was mind-blowing, because the first letter in the file was from the woman who I talked about a couple months ago in the counter-transference sadism episode. So if you haven't listened to that, stop right now. It's very short. Well, it's half hour, but I think this story will mean much more if you go back and listen to that. Um, but the gist of it was that I worked with a woman in my third year of residency at Brown, and it went horribly, horribly. And I, she wouldn't talk. She literally would just glare at me or sometimes curl up in a ball or even just face away from me. And I, I acted out my unconscious, you know, through what we call proje- projective identification. I, I was brutal to her. I, I got on email, I wrote notes, I turned away from her. I just, I acted out, but I was justifying it with my conscious brain saying, oh, she doesn't want to talk, I'll just do work. So it was a shameful, shameful incident. And one for years, I just looked back on just thinking, what was I doing? Because this is the woman, as you might remember, who when I told her I wasn't going to do therapy with her anymore, she stormed out of my office and smashed a window. So anyway, so a few weeks ago, right after the counter-transference sadism, sadism episode with Saj, I found this letter. And this was written 2007, so a couple of years after I finished residency. And I changed a few details to protect confidentiality. So here's what she wrote. Again, this is a woman who I thought of as one of my greatest failures and something I didn't actually even want to share with people because I was so embarrassed how I acted. So she says, see, June 2007. Dear Dr. Heacock, this is Jessica. 
I was your patient in your third year of residency at Brown. And the, there are two reasons why I'm writing you this letter. The first reason is because this letter is a homework assignment from my current doctor. The second reason is because I would like you to know how much I've changed over this past year. A couple of months ago, I had a dream that I was in session with one of the doctors in his third year of residency. The dream was about the doctor not giving me a chance to listen to me and explain myself. I was pleading with the doctor to allow me to explain why I was bothered by something. And as I was pleading, I grabbed the doctor's shirt, not something I would ever do. And this was not out of aggression, but out of pleading for someone to give me a chance to explain myself. And then that doctor turned into you. My interpretation of the dream when I had you for a doctor, I hardly ever talked, spoke up about what I wanted to say with you until it was too late. I lost my chance. I was afraid you did not want to help me or even have me as your patient. The begging and pleading part of the dream was about giving me another chance because of all the times I did not talk in session. There was an underlying reason why I began to push doctors away by not talking and saying, I don't want to be here, even though I did want to be there. I really did want someone to talk to and someone to listen to me and to care about me, what I said or what I did. I felt for years no one actually wanted to listen to me because I'm so pathetic that the only person that would help me or listen to me was a psychiatrist. I wanted to show you that I was worth getting help. The other reason, which was probably the main reason why I did not want to talk in therapy, was because I did not want to get attached or make a connection to trust and to talk with and express my fears, my fears and thoughts, and then have it end in one year. A little side note here. In my residency, sometimes we would see patients for a year and pass them off to another resident, and other times we would see them for three years. Like I said before, I can't really talk to anyone I know about how I feel except doctors. I get used to that person I'm hurt when they leave after just a year. It was easier to push the doctors away than to open up and talk so my feelings wouldn't get hurt and I wouldn't feel that loss. But this year, I began to trust again. Last summer, I was having a really difficult time, and during my second session with the new resident, I could not bring myself to talk I felt really hopeless and no one could help me. And he basically told me if I wasn't going to talk, then just leave. Then I had to wait two more months for another resident to quote unquote pick, pick up my case. And I got a new doctor, Dr. A, who was different with her. She had great patience and persistence with me. And after two months of waiting, I was finally ready to try to talk. Dr. Heacock, I'm very different now. I talk through the whole session. Sometimes I have so much I want to talk about that we don't get to talk about it. During one session, I write that down and we talk about it the next time. Remember how I used to move my chair back in the corner or crawl up into a ball and hide from you? I don't do that anymore. I sit up straight. I don't even really slouch in my chair anymore. I sometimes lean forward to listen and while I talk and listen and I talk throughout the whole session. And then she concludes. She says, I've come a long way, Dr. Heacock, and my current doctor says you'd be proud of what I've accomplished. Do you remember during my last session with you, you asked me 
how did you say goodbye with your previous resident doctor? And I said, well, it depends on the person. And then you shook my hand. I wanted then to ask you if I could have a hug goodbye. But I was afraid you would say no. It's so sad right here because I'm such a hugger. I would have definitely given her a hug. And then she says, I'm glad I had you for a doctor. I learned from you. I wanted you to know that. I want you to know why I didn't talk in therapy. After a year with me in therapy, you probably didn't want me for a patient again. That's true. But I would see her now. (laughs) And I've learned a lot since then. Hypothetically, I think you would want to have me as your patient now, the way I am. I've always looked up to you and wanted to please you by talking in therapy. I just wanted you to know this. Wow. I hadn't read this letter in years, probably since I was seven, and uh, it was just so, first of all, strangely ironic to find it just a few weeks after I had told her story on this podcast. And um, I guess there's so much, there's so much to learn in this. I was obviously reminded of the the acting out and the projective identification. And, and I also remembered that I had no knowledge, ability to recognize kind of the shutdown, dissociative, freeze state of trauma back then. I, you know, I mistook her, her shutdown for oppositionality. I thought she was being feisty. I thought she was trying to piss me off. I thought she was being a bad customer. I had no understanding then that, and I knew she had childhood abuse. I knew she had trauma, but she wouldn't go there. But now I look at it in such a different lens and I see she was so traumatized. And I was witnessing her protective response. She had been in sort of a dissociative shutdown freeze for so long as a protective mechanism. And, you know, I had no idea what I was confronting. But I think what's also so interesting to read this letter is to think that even though it feels like one of my biggest failures, um, she's so sweet. And she she wanted to reach out to me and thank me and apologize. She apo- I felt like I, all these years, I felt like I should have apologized to her for being such a crappy doctor. But she had such compassion for me and for what we were trying to do. And wow. That letter, I mean, it was 13 years ago when I got that letter, and it just made me so moved and happy to hear it. And I, it also reminded me that, you know, in therapy and in life, we're all experiencing it through our own unique lenses and, and templates. And I, I thought I knew how she was experiencing us. I had no idea, no idea. And I guess it's a good reminder that, in a lot of ways, we never really know how people around us are experiencing us. We can only guess or ask them. So if any of you out there are maybe thinking about an old therapist or teacher or doctor, or write them. Tell them how it was for you. Uh, as I look through, the, there's so many letters in this folder. I'm just going to share three with you today, but... Wow, they really not only just filled up my heart, but just brought back so many lessons and memory and memories. And yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you, all of you. 
Okay, here's the next two letters. A little, a little context first. Um, one of the really difficult kind of dialectics balances that docs have to do is we have to balance hope with realistic prognosis. You know, for most of human history, doctors could do nothing, essentially, <laughs> just provide hope and, and presence. But lately, we have a lot more things to offer. But then compound that within psychiatry, what's the prognosis for bipolar disorder? Well, it depends, and it depends on, here we go, it depends on whether you have full-blown bipolar 1 manic depression, it depends on your adverse childhood experiences, it depends on parent-child attachments, it depends on substance use, what substances and when, to what degree, and where they happen in the developing brain. It depends on how carefully you manage your sleep, it depends on how early you get treatment, it depends on whether you're able to find loving, supportive relationships in your life, depends on whether you're able to develop meaning and structure and on. I could go on for 15 more minutes. But the, the gist of it is that establishing prognosis in psychiatry is really hard. Yet so many people want to know, particularly when they're young. And I talked about that last episode, that, that major psychiatric illness, you know, the big ones like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and unipolar depression, typically hit in the teen years. So I'm often having these discussions with families about prognosis. And so you're trying to present hope, but you're also trying to be realistic. So these next two letters have to do with this dilemma. Um, these letters relate to a young man I saw mm, about 13 years ago. And I think I had maybe four visits with him. He was a uh, late adolescent. And... It was pretty clear to me at the time that, that he was going to have a really ominous path. And one of the things that we, one of the main things I think we do in medicine is we do pa pattern recognition. And one of the reasons I think residency is so long and that we see so many patients is so we can get really good at pattern recognition. And I remember meeting this kid, we'll call him Matthew. And from the get-go, from the very first eval, I thought, oh no, oh no. And this was a kid with a bipolar spectrum disorder with psychosis, substance problems, no insight into his illness, no interest in treatment. He would get pretty psychotic and violent at times. And I think on the fourth visit, I met with he and his mother and I said, I'm super worried about Matthew. And I wonder if, if we should have uh, him apply for social security disability. Typically, I would not recommend Social Security disability for someone so young. I mean, that's a heavy thing to talk about. Because basically, to get Social Security disability, you, you have to be proven incapable of maintaining full-time competitive employment. And he was young. I mean, he was a late teenager. And, uh, and I said, because I'm just worried that Matthew's not going to be able to support himself. And I think it would be good to at least try for this. And the mom look like I'd stabbed her and she just turned white and shut, shut down. And when they left, I thought, Oh no, Oh no. What did I do? So I never saw them again, but I did get 
two letters from mom. So here's the first letter. This letter was like a gut punch. Okay, here we go. Dr. Heacock. After my conversation with you this morning, I drove to Boulder. And during the drive there and back, I formulated in my mind some things I really want to share with you. One theme that I teach year after year is to be very careful about the words you use towards any child. What you say can have lifelong effects. And I would definitely categorize what you said as having damaging effects. An analogy I would use would be a coach getting a boy on his team that really has no athletic talent. Instead of being patient and getting to know the child and see what his strengths were, the coach tells the boy he has no talent and he will never be a ball player and the best thing for him to do is get off the field immediately. You formulated in your mind what Matthew's deficits were and what his outcomes were going to be after you only spent about three hours of time with him. You read prior material and charts about him but never really got to know him and you sentenced him to doom and gloom. Those words hurt and if Matthew had a mind to, he could use those words to go ahead and tell himself that I'll never amount to anything. I belong in jail. I'll never benefit society. You gave him absolutely no hope. I realize that you work in an environment that is depressing at times, and you see a lot of cases that have bad outcomes. I wonder if you've become so cynical that you have a hard time having an I can, we can attitude. I can understand why you said what you said, but it still hurts tremendously. I just hope that you will see this as a way to do a self-check so no other child has to hear you say words like this. I pray that one day I can call you and tell you that you were so wrong about Matthew. Not for the effect of throwing it in your face, but because that would mean Matthew had overcome his disabilities. I have faith that he will. His teachers believe in him. His extended friends and family have faith in him. All he needs is someone that believes in him, and because they do believe, they will be successful in helping him. I'm sorry that I'm preaching to you, and I hope that this is not a letter I will regret sending years from now. I'm just a mom that loves my son very much, and I don't think you should expect anything less from me. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Oh, I remember getting that letter. thought I was going to throw up. Yeah. (laughs) I kept it on top of my desk for weeks, and I read it over and over and over. And I even showed it to one of my colleagues, and I said, This is making me so sad. I don't think I can practice anymore. She said, throw it away. She said, it's bullshit. Throw it away. I said, maybe it's not bullshit. Maybe I really blew it. She said, you're a great doctor. Bullshit. Throw it away. Um, But I kept it, and uh, I'm really glad I did. And then a few years later, I got this letter. And this was a really hard letter to read as well. April 2013, Dear Dr. Heacock, It's been a while since I've updated you about Matthew, and I thought it was important to let you know what has been going on with him. In the past, I reported the good about him, and today I want to tell you that your prediction for him did come through. Matthew's now on full disability, and he's really struggling. After high school graduation, for a while he worked as a bagger in a grocery store, but he started to experience paranoia, depression, severe anxiety. We sought treatment through many various means, but he never showed signs of improvement. 
Eventually, he was hospitalized many times with four suicide attempts. His last attempt kept him in the hospital for months. He cut his wrist so deeply that it penetrated into the bone. We've had support from so many areas, and eventually I just let him go and stopped trying to get him help. After several other medical personnel advised us to get him on disability, we started the process, thinking it would take several years, but he was given full Social Security disability after just a three-month review. His allowance is not much, but it pays his rent and leaves a minimal amount for food. We supplement a small amount for him each month as well. He's been on so many different medications, but he finally decided to stop all of them and got a medical marijuana license. He seems to be somewhat functioning. He isolates in his room and occasionally gets out with some friends. And last year, after watching him struggle so much with his depression, I mentally told myself that, that if he did eventually kill himself, I'd be okay with it because it would mean that he was not suffering anymore. It was the words of my cousin that finally led me to a place to let him go. He said that I needed to let Matthew be on his own journey and stop trying to keep him from his path. I'm mainly writing this letter because I know I gave you such a hard time about giving up on Matthew. I think it is definitely fair to say you had tremendous insight and I was not ready to hear what you had to say. I will always be sad for what has happened to my son, but I know that I did everything I could and my life has to go on. So I just want to apologize and ask forgiveness in my hoodier than thou attitude I showed towards you and wish you only the best in your continued practice. If you ever have another mother that gets upset with you, please feel free to give them my information and I will be glad to speak with them and tell them about my experience. Take care. Oh, wow. I, I did not want to be right. You know, I read that, I remember getting that letter and feeling like, oh, it's really sweet that she wrote me. But I didn't want to be right. I mean... I'm doing this podcast because I want to put hope out there. I want people to know that people do get better and treatment can work and therapy works and human connection works. And um, this was a case where yeah, I was right and oh, I wish I hadn't been right. But again, if, if you're listening to this, Matthew's mother, um, thanks for that letter. Yeah, I keep it in my, in my pile here with all my other letters. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it was very sweet and humbling and it did, it did really help because, yeah, the first letter was a deep wound for a long time and yeah, I've just replayed that session in my mind so many times. Did I, did I take away hope? I never want to take away hope. I, I mean, this is about hope. This podcast is about hope. So on that note. Um, I just want to thank you all for listening. And as you know, this is, uh, this is my pa passion project. This is a nonprofit deal, but if you want to pay us the way you can pay us, you can write us emails. Uh, I get some of the sweetest, most profound, vulnerable, moving emails. And, um, I try to respond to them all personally. And so for all of those folks who've written to me, um, I read them all and save them all. So if there's anything you want to share, um, comments about the show or questions or suggestions, love to hear it. 
And also, we love to read your comments on iTunes. Those are really meaningful. And um, as you may remember, the only one I've read aloud is the one by Spoon Dippity, who didn't like the marijuana episode. <laughs> so, but I think, again, for the regular listeners of this, you know that I've changed um, some of my views on at least using THC for somatic trauma work. So, and again, the final thing you can do to support us, you know, not financially, but just to spread the hope is pass on this episode or other episodes you like to your friends and family or coworkers. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>